Let's see, Huda Geber back with another uh, Jewish History Soundbites podcast. And uh, being that this Mitzi Shabbos is the um, anniversary, Chavches Iyar, the anniversary of um, the capture of Yerushalayim by the Israeli army during the Six Day War, um, talk a little bit about that in general. And also, especially, the Mir Yeshiva, um, which sat on the border of the old Yerushalayim and, um, and played a part in the war. Um, just more, some more recent history than what's normally uh, done on this in the context of this podcast. Um, so the, the Six-Day War in general... Um, the first part is is that you know Yerushalayim is divided um, in two halves for the nineteen years between nineteen forty eight and nineteen sixty seven. Um, that's what eventually leads to the capture of Yerushalayim, the other half of Yerushalayim during the Six Day War. So the first thing to understand is that the the other half of Yerushalayim was lost during the nineteen forty eight war. In other words, if the Israeli army had been capable of holding Yerushalayim during the 1948 war, then there never would have been a um, capturing or liberating of Yerushalayim during the 1967 war. So, so they are not able to hold Yerushalayim during the 48 war. And therefore, Yerushalayim is divided in half, and Mir Yeshiva stands on the border. Mir Yeshiva, in the Beis Yisrael neighborhood, in Yerushalayim is right off of Shmuel Navi, the Mandelbaum Gate, which was the main um, connecting point between the two halves of Yerushalayim, the so-called East and West Yerushalayim. And the Mirishi is literally a block away from that. So, so um, in May of 1967, Gamal Abdul Nasser, the dictator or the president, whatever you want to call him, of Egypt, he closes the Straits of Tehran, which is the waterway leading to the south of Israel, and he starts talking a very bellicose and, and belligerent um, war talk. And he even says things which, think about it, it's only uh, 22 years after the Holocaust. He starts talking about how we're going to push the Jews into the sea, we're going to finish off Hitler's work. And people are get very scared. And those few weeks before the war breaks out is actually called in Hebrew the Hamtana, the time of waiting. The reserves are called up. The economy comes to a halt. And people are terrified um, of what's going to happen. Literally, they might be pushed into the sea by the, by the Egyptian army. The uh, minister, re- recalled minister of defense, Moshe Dayan, he said he's not so worried about Syria because they're far and very weak. He's not so worried about... Jordan, because even though they're close, they're very weak, but he's very scared of Egypt, because even if they're far away, they're a very strong army. And as far as Moshe Dayan was concerned, the principal war was against Egypt down in the Sinai. It's also important to remember that the war takes place in the context of the Cold War. The, the way that, that the Soviet Union and the United States see the war is that it's a proxy war really taking place between, between uh, Johnson, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who's the president of the United States at the time, and Kosygin, the dictator of the Soviet Union. So they look at it as a power struggle. 
Syria is an ally of the Soviet Union. Egypt is officially non-aligned, but they have Soviet military advisors. And surprisingly, Jordan, which is an ally of England, and their army is built by England, they all of a sudden allow their army to be taken control of by the Egyptian army when the war breaks out. And um, the yeshiva, the Mir Yeshiva at the time, was a small yeshiva. It was very small. It was mostly Rishalmis. The big American wave of Bahram coming to the Mir actually took place following the Six-Day War, partly because of it. Um, and, uh, and the yeshiva was quite small. There were a few Americans in the yeshiva at the time. Um, but the Mir Yeshiva had already gone through a lot. I'm talking about a yeshiva that during World War I went into exile, was almost completely destroyed, and managed to survive in Poltava in the Ukraine, starving in exile far away, a small yeshiva, and managed to get back and rebuild. During World War II, the war, it's the only yeshiva that makes it out to Shanghai, that makes it out in its entirety. So they've been through a lot. But now they're facing another problem, is that the war comes to them, and it comes directly to them. Just to give you an idea of how small the mirror was in those days, I spoke this week to a, a, um, a elderly fellow who had learned in the Hebron Yeshiva, which in those days was in Geula, just a few blocks away from the mirror in Beis Yisrael. He learned in Hebron Yeshiva during the early 1960s, right before the Six-Day War. And he said how he used to come and learn once in a while in the mirror. He enjoyed um, the Rashiva Reb Chaim, especially later on when he would give Shmuzin. He enjoyed Reb Nachum, and he would come to learn in the Mir Yeshiva once in a while from Chevron. And when he would come, he said that Reb Yudel used to come over to him. The older Reb Yudel Finkel used to come over and say, maybe you can stay for Mincha, we need you for a minion. He said that's what Mir Yeshiva looked like at the time, that they needed this Bachar from Chevron who was, had stopped by to participate in the minion. That's just to give you an idea. However, the Mir had the largest uh, room that could be made into a bomb shelter. The dining room of the Mir Shiv at the time was big enough to fit in the whole neighborhood. So the half of Beis Yisrael neighborhood, along with the yeshiva, goes down into the miklat, into the bomb shelter. They put sandbags around the window, so it's a proper bomb shelter. And that becomes their home for the next couple of days. In the meantime, on June 5th, 1967, at 8 in the morning, the Israeli Air Force makes a preemptive strike against the Egyptian Air Force when the planes are mostly grounded. By 10 o'clock, we can say the Six-Day War, within the first two hours, was basically over because between 80 and 90% of the Egyptian Air Force is knocked out on the ground the Israeli Air Force attains air supremacy, which is essential for any modern warfare, and the deal is done. There's nothing more to talk about. The Egyptian Air Force is knocked out of the war, and once the Egyptian Air Force is knocked out, the Egyptian army um, does not stand much of a chance in the Sinai. Um, they're eventually pushed back all the way to the Suez Canal, and the road to Cairo is open. It does take a few days, but without air cover, um, they didn't have a chance. And once the Egyptian army is knocked out of the war, the Jordanian and Syrian armies were not able to do much on their own. So the, the war was pretty much decided within the first few hours. However, um, the Field Marshal Amer of the Egyptian army lies to King Hussein of Jordan, and he says, we're winning the war. Start shelling West Jerusalem. 
And that's what happens. The Jordanians start to shell. They start firing shells, also shell, all, shells all over Israel, but especially Yerushalayim, it's nearby. There's a 6,000 shell, you know, just total destruction in the first few hours around Yerushalayim. And the Mir Yeshiva sustains a direct hit. Of course, everyone had gone into the bomb shelters. But the leadership of the Yeshiva, the Yeshiva Rabbeinish Finkel, again, two years earlier, his father, Lazy Yudel Finkel, had already passed on. Rabbeinish Finkel did not make it to the Yeshiva. He was in his home in Meish Arm. There was a building nearby that they were, they did not have a Miklat, they did not have a bomb shelter. So Rabbeinish organized a group of people to bring sandbags, and he himself was sitting there schlepping sandbags to put around the building so that they could go down, and he's taking care of the neighbors, and then he goes into the shelter, he doesn't make it to the yeshiva. Um, and and shells are falling uh, all around, there's no way to make it. The yeshiva of Chaim Shmulevitz is in the yeshiva together with the boys and neighbors from the neighborhood, families are coming in, Reb Nachum Partsovich, who's already... A, 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 a Rosh Hashiva giving Shir Kolis in the Yeshiva, he's young, but he, he's downstairs there in the Miklat, the bomb shelter as well. They're literally a block away from the border. They're a somewhat, even then, tall building before the, the fourth floor was added, still a three-story building a block away from the no-man's land. And then, not only that, but the Israeli army, when they decide to take care of the Jordanian threat, one of the points of crossing the no-man's land is literally right next to the yeshiva on Shmuel Navi, right near where the Zvil uh, yeshiva, Rabbi Center's yeshiva is today, right near there. That's where part of the paratroopers uh, cross over into the no-man's land to capture the old city. So the Mir Yeshiva is right on the line. They sustain a direct hit, and the whole building shakes right down to the Miklat where they are. People are crying, screaming, women, children. People are saying Tehillim. Rav Nachum Partsovich had built a, a little, little uh, partition out of cinder blocks that had been lying around. He had brought his shtender and his gemara down into the miklat, and he sat there learning, completely oblivious to the bedlam and the panic going on around him. That was the Rav Nachum who he was. There's much to talk about Rav Nachum in general, but he completely delved himself into what he was learning. Um, the Think about it, the yeshiva, along with all these neighbors, are down there for almost three days, June 5th, the 6th, and 7th. And and he's sitting there in these cinder blocks with his shtender and his gemara, completely learning and absorbed for those three days. The yeshiva of Chaim has someone lead them into Hillam. He interrupts it from time to time, giving a shmooze, trying to give chizik, not just for the yeshiva, but also for the people who had, who had joined them, for everyone there. And it's a completely panicked situation. And once that shell hits, it actually destroyed part of the building. Till today, when you're standing in front of Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, you could see in the facade of the Yeshiva, the new bricks, exactly where that shell had hit, um, had hit the Yeshiva. But, um, but of course, after a couple of days, after all this shelling, the Jordanian army is attacked by the invading Israeli forces, tanks, and the paratroopers of Matagur's paratroop brigade, which eventually uh, takes the old city of Yerushalayim. The Jordanian army goes into full retreat. This is definitely not the 
context to to uh, to g- explain the whole battle plan and the strategy of Uzi Narkis, the commander of Central Command of the Israeli army in the Yerushalayim area on the West Bank. But ultimately they captured the old city, Matagur, on his army radio, which was recorded. It became a famous uh, slogan in Israel. He says the words, Har Habayit Biadeinu, we captured the Harabayis, the Kaisal's back, and they have the Kaisal back into, into uh, Israeli control. Once um, the, they were able to get out, the Mirishiva, they were able to get out of the Miklat and return to normal. There took place um, several things. First of all, the Roshiva Chaim recognized it as a nace that they were still alive. This is the immortal Yeshiva, the Yeshiva that can never get destroyed, not during World War I, not during the Holocaust. It just keeps on sitting here. The Yeshiva was right on the line of the war. The Jordanians could have invaded first. The shell that hit the yeshiva directly could have made the whole entire building collapse, and yet it didn't. And this was clearly a nace. The yeshiva of Chaim said, we're alive because of a miracle, and therefore we have to thank Hashem and celebrate this miracle. So this is a miracle of Mir Yeshiva till today. And uh, he also attributed the reason that the yeshiva survived, not to the davening of everyone, not to his shmuzin that he was mechazik everyone, not even to his son-in-law of Nachum's learning with Asmada, but he actually attributed it to one of the neighbors who had found shelter with the yeshiva, who had been in Iguna, who is quite a famous story, who suddenly cried out in the midst of all the terror right after the shell had hit the building and everyone was scared it was going to collapse. She cried out, Hashem, I forgive my husband for abandoning me and for leaving me in Iguna, please forgive your children and have mercy on them as well. And the Roshiva Reb Chaim famously said that in her merit, that's why the building did not collapse and, uh, and they were saved. The, the, uh, imagine the excitement, the Kaisal's back, people wanted to go daven there. The Israeli army down in the south, they felt that they, that, you know, they were supposed to be the main show against Egypt, and they actually, in the last days of the war, while the um, attack on Syria was taking place on the Golan Heights, so the Israeli army down in the south in Egypt kept on pushing further past their objectives all the way to the Suez Canal. The general of the Southern Command, Shaikh Gavish, had, them, had his tanks push all the way to the Suez Canal so that the spotlight can be returned to the south, because the capture of the Kaisal was so exciting and was so exhilarating, and everyone was talking about it, that there was, they were losing the spotlight. But if they would capture the Suez Canal, one of the most important waterways in the world, then they would get the attention back to the south. It didn't really help. The fact that the Kaisal was taken back, and uh, the army decided to allow people to come daven there for the first time on Shavuos. If anyone's been to Yisrael Shavuos, they notice that there's a big thing to go to the Kaisal for Vasik at Shavuos morning. Where does such a custom come from? It comes from the Six-Day War. It was the first time that Jews were allowed to daven by the Kaisal. Imagine the Chav it's captured. It's a week and a half before Shavuos. So the first time that it's kept, that it, they're allowed to daven there at the Kaisal is Shavuos. So it became a tradition to go there. So we're actually kind of celebrating the Six-Day War, although they don't know it. But uh, that's, that's where they go. So that's first Shavuos night. Amir Yeshiva, everyone's learning and kaching, and it's, it's, it's exciting and it's great. But everyone's talking about, wow, we're going to go to the Kaisal soon. And there's too much hack about the Kaisal. So the Rosh Hashiva Reb Chaim gets up, Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, he gets up in the middle of the night on Shavuos night, and he bangs on the bima and Mir Yeshiva, and he says, Rabbi Saizol Menvisen, 
as the richtig, as the koisel is kaidish, over the shtender is kaidish kadashin. Everyone should remember that although the koisel is holy, but the shtender, meaning the Torah that they're learning on Shavuos night when we receive the Torah, that is kaidish kadashin. Lest one think that the Rashiva of Chaim did not appreciate the koisel, he became someone who went to the koisel once a week for the rest of his life, at least once a week, sometimes more often if there was a need to do so. He loved the Kaisel. He was a special place at David. He used to go once a month to Kever Rachel. He had a tremendous uh, emotional attachment. He would cry. He would daven at these places. And he definitely appreciated what the meaning was that they got it back. And he had the opportunity to go daven there. But he definitely had his educational priorities and the way he wanted his students to relate to the events of the time. So that's a little bit about the Six Day War, the Kaisel, and of course the Mir Yeshiva's story within that, and uh, this was Yehudi Geber for tours of these holy places and these amazing people. You could email me ygebss at gmail.com. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. If you enjoy, give us a good rating, share it with friends and family, and you can follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites. We hope you enjoy.